Well, good morning, church, and happy Sunday. I wore my specs today because we have a little bit of an emphasis on seeing. And we begin our worship this morning with some words from the Belgic Confession, Article 2, one of the standards of our faith, which gives us some advice about how best to see in this world. It basically suggests that seers are readers and that we ought to be reading two books. The book of nature, so look outside into the great outdoors, we are to be reading the book of nature and the book of scripture. And it goes on to suggest that it is the book of scripture that most clearly helps us to see the book of nature well. This is, of course, in the book itself. So I invite you to hear these words from the book that we love, Psalm 19, as our call to worship this morning, where it says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, and yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. That's the book of nature telling us the truth of God, but that's not all. Scripture speaks to, and so the psalmist goes on and says this in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Taken together, we are invited by God to behold. Behold God's word. Behold God's world. And together we join with the psalmist, closing the same way that he ends that very psalm by saying, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Friends, I invite you to stand and let's sing together in worship to this great God.
together. Friends, Jesus is not unfamiliar with storms. When he was on earth, he calmed storms. He said, peace be still. In the midst of them, he even said, it is I, do not be afraid. 
It is with this constant reminder of Jesus' presence that we have here in this space together that we can come safely into confession to name the oppression in our world, to name the part that we have in it, to come honestly, to be cleansed and forgiven. I invite you this morning to join in this prayer of confession. We'll use the words on the screen and pray them in unison together. Let's pray together. Forgive us our sins, O Lord. Forgive us the sins of our youth and the sins of our age, the sins of our inner life and the sins of our outer actions, our secret and our pet sins, our presumptuous and our careless sins, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others. Forgive us the sins that we know and the sins unknown to us. Forgive them, O Lord. Forgive them all because of your great goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Sisters and brothers, the scriptures tell us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can say, the peace of Christ be with you. Our bell choir has prepared a piece um, coming out of this prayer of confession to remind us, I'm not going to give you the title because I think you're going to recognize it, but to remind us of in this cleansing and this um, washing clean that we can shine our light into this world because it comes from the light of the world.
Well, thank you ever so much, Bell Choir, for leading us and using your gifts to worship God with us this morning together. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We're very glad for the many of you who have already wholeheartedly joined us in that mission, and we continue to welcome in more and more who would like to do so. We are a place that likes to take God seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. And so we uh, tried this past week to snag a photo at 2.22 p.m. on the date, 2.22.22. And you can see we missed it by a minute. Come on. (laughs) (sighs) We have to wait 11 years now for the next one. So you can get in the next pick hopefully, but uh, we like to laugh together, but we also like to rally around that mission that I just shared with you and also to be a community that belongs, grows, and serves together. So please, if, uh, if you're among us and we don't yet know you, uh, it'd be wonderfully helpful to make yourself known with our connection cards, and, we, and we'd love to enfold you in any ways that are fitting and that you are ready. Also, this upcoming week is a big one. If you didn't know it, Lent begins this week. That's a big chunk in the church calendar, and we like to remind you of that often. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We will have a worship service together for that. But before we do it, we have our community meal out in the atrium. I was informed between services that it is an old-school classic meal of meat and potatoes and vegetables. So uh, it'd be wonderful for you to join us for the meal, 545, and or also the service afterwards here in the sanctuary at 630, which will also be online. We'd love to join with you together for that. And that kicks off this season called Lent, where we all the more intentionally journey with Jesus all the way up into Holy Week, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday to journey together intentionally. We have these booklets. You may have received them on your way into the sanctuary. Uh, It's a Lenten devotional called Less is More. You can get these at the front office or anytime throughout the week as well. It begins on Ash Wednesday and runs up until Easter. It's a very practical way of doing some things in our life that declutter in order to more clearly see Jesus, and it's very conversational, so we hope that you would uh, join into that with your family, with your group, even your journal, whatever is, all of these are fitting. Also, uh, uh, just under a week from today is Trivia Night uh, for our church, a great night of fun and good purpose. So uh, if you haven't signed up yet, either individually or as a team, uh, please do so soon to get in on it. In fact, here's a little uh, teaser for you. How many bells do you think are in the bell choir? Well, trivia. Oh, you guys counted between service. (laughs) All right. What is the best-selling song of all time? White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Which of Jesus' disciples was actually married? I'm having fun, then, Nate. <laughs> Peter. It's Peter. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, it'd be great to sign up for that. It's a great date night. It's a great girls' night out. There is food. There is child care. There is entertainment. So make sure you don't miss out on it. Finally, at this time, I'd like to invite our kids to scoot out to Sunday school in your various places. You can do that. Our middle schoolers were already in the building all night last night for a lock-in, so uh, they attended the first service together, so they're probably sleeping somewhere right now. 
but we continue in our worship this morning with the giving of our tithes and offerings, and then once again, joining our voices together in song. Let's do so. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 9, and I just couldn't uh, afford not sharing the whole chapter with you, so I searched high and low, the entire church, to find the very best readers this morning to share with you uh, the word of God. Listen to the word of the Lord from the book that we love, John chapter 9. Before we do that, let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are truly the light of the world and that in you there is no darkness at all. And so we pray and ask that you might shine, illumine our hearts, our minds, our ears, and our eyes, that we might see you differently. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, 
We must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes and washed, and now I see. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How know, is it that he can now can see? We know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I have told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are one of this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man blind at birth. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Lord, I believe you. I worship you. For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? 
If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, give it up for those readers. Come on. Thank you, readers. You did a great job of telling a story about sight in a visual way. I'm not so sure about that Pharisee guy, though. Uh, who, who asked him to do that? I thought I said we were looking for the best, JB. However, these readers put us in a little bit of a perilous position, didn't they, this morning? We're now turning to the point in the service where we uh, share a sermon together where, trusting in the power of the Spirit at work in you and me, we, we try to see what God might be saying to us this morning. It's an attempt to be illumined, to see God in the story, but if we take Jesus' words at the very end of the story, literally, that can be a dangerous thing to see God. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Not what you'd expect to hear from Jesus after he just literally changed a man from being blind to being able to see. Maybe, maybe this is a little too tough to do this morning. I don't know if we should embark on this sermon thing. If we see too clearly, our guilt remains. I, I wonder, maybe we should just go to the itty bitty and get brunch together. I hear Glenn Lau's got season tickets to Hope. He can surely afford uh, all, of, all of us going to the itty bitty, can't you, Glenn? Maybe that's the point, though. Maybe this story is about what we claim, how what we claim to see actually blinds us from seeing Jesus. You know, this week we are seeing in the news the start of what could be this, a significant event in our world history. It's, we're seeing the consequences of human beings striving for power and for control with one nation invading another nation. It's scary. It's unsettling for many in this world, even us. And maybe it makes us a little bit curious about the future. Taking a step back, we might ask, what is up with this world? Is everything going to be okay? Not just globally, but for us in American society as well. It's easy to question, how are we really doing is society becoming more just? Are we becoming more connected and respectful of one another? Is this a place where our kids will be able to raise kids? Statistically speaking, uh, the majority of us gathered here will be a little bit nostalgic about the past, remembering with fondness a time in an era when we were more connected with one another, less divisive, and certainly more safe. Maybe that's true for some of us, while others of us would say, absolutely not. The world is a better place. But what we can say for sure is that if we were looking to the time when Jesus walked on this earth as a, a time of the good old days, the penultimate of social connection and, and, and relational harmony, then John chapter 9 is a pretty strong counterpoint, isn't it? For the blind man's experience in this chapter is very different from the idyllic, loving embrace that we yearn for from community. It starts out quite messy, literally, by Jesus spitting on the ground and making mud and rubbing it on the man's eyes, and then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. 
which is easier said than done uh, when you're blind, isn't it? How do you get to the pool if you have, can't see? Regardless, he makes it to the pool. He is washed clean and he can see. It's the miracle of the story. This is good news. Only an act of God could do this. But what we don't expect is the society of that time rejecting him for this experience. First, the community rejects him, and then the religious leaders reject him, and finally, his family. By taking a look at each one of those, I hope that their story might reveal to us some of our own blind spots and how we see Jesus. First, he was rejected by his neighbors. Immediately following his dip in the pool, what does he do? He heads home. He can see, and he can get there on his own now. He's got a good story to share. What we don't expect is the welcome back he would receive. It might be best said that he was welcome back with doubt. Doubt that he could actually see first, and then doubt that it was actually him who was once blind. They even questioned his identity. Can this really be him? He, he might just look like the, that man. I think the neighbors uh, deserve to be kind of thrown under the bus. But before we do that, we, we should give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. A man born blind cannot all of the sudden see again. We have a number of folks in our own community who are struggling with eyesight, literally right now having numerous folks go through surgeries on their cataracts and retinas. The eyes are a sensitive thing, and, and, and sight is, is very tenuous in many cases. It doesn't happen very often or at all that someone that was born blind be, is able to see again. Not only that, but the people that were blind in those days were very vulnerable and poor. They were relegated to a street corner to beg. He likely went to the same old dusty intersection with his tin cup and waited, to, relying on the charity of those in his community. He had no chance of getting a job. He was an outcast. There was no chance of getting married or having a relationship. He was different than everyone else. He was completely reliant on the mercy of other people. To see this kind of guy, one of those people, walking around normally, that, that would be quite different for those original neighbors. However, it was his sight that was restored Nothing about his appearance would change. Maybe his eyes look a little different. How could they not tell who he was? The man went to the same busy intersection every single day. They would have seen him. He doesn't hang out begging in Timbuktu. He goes downtown where you have to walk past with your jerry can to fill up at this community well. People would have walked past him as they went to the, they went to the New Galilee Brewery to catch a beverage with their spouse for date night. They would have seen him. They, they, they probably even went to church with him. His parents were loyal synagogue leaders, as we'll soon figure, consider. How did they not recognize him? How did they not know who he was? Did his gaining of vision somehow rob them of their sight? The problem is they couldn't see this renewed man because they couldn't see past what they already knew of him. He was, to them, the blind man. 
Nothing can be done about that. His identity to them was his blindness, his disability. When Jesus changed him, they couldn't abandon what they already knew to be true about him. Which has got me wondering a little bit this week. How often do I see people for only what I know them to be? How often do I see people based on what I know about their appearance, their abilities or capacities, what I know about their religious or political affiliation, what I know about even their vocation? Do I really believe that Jesus can be at work in the fill in the blank? A couple weeks ago, Steve Bronius back there and Sound and I had the chance to go to Juarez, Mexico to visit one of our mission partners, uh, a church named Frontera de Gracia. The pastor there's name is Samuel. He's a missionary actually from Chiapas who was sent up to Juarez to plant a church with the Presbyterian Church. His brother, Angel, is actually a missionary from Chiapas as well serving right here in Holland. Uh, He's one of our friends over at Third Reformed Church, and he invited us to come and see what God was up to in Juarez through this ministry called Frontera de Gracia. Now, if you've ever traveled before, and uh, some of us have, you might know that there's a tendency when we travel, especially internationally. It's so easy for us to, to make quick judgments about what that place is like, or what those people are like, or, or what life might be like for them and what they value. We're, we're kind of mm, blinded, you might say, by our own notions of what a, a good American life is. It's innate to us. We write stories. We talked about that this summer with the confabulations. We, we, we create a narrative for someone based on a very brief encounter we have with them. And I think it's even more true when we're traveling internationally. Well, when we were traveling, we had the chance to go to three different shelters, places where, uh, in many cases, they're filled with the majority of people are migrants who find themselves on the border, stuck, waiting in kind of limbo land. One of the largest shelters we went to was on the final day. We drove up, and there was a public school right next to it with an enormous um, wall built out of cinder blocks that kind of held uh, and kept safe all of the people in the shelter. There were about 24 different two-bedroom condos, each housing between 10 and 12 people. And right at the front was this big two-story nursery school, and we parked right in front of it, and then we walked up to the gate. When we got to the gate, we saw a man standing right there as we went into the gate. He was a big man, kind of uh, wide-chested, you might say, with a hooded sweatshirt on. His long black hair ponytail came out of uh, his baseball cap in the back. He had a goatee, a little scraggly, and he kind of sat with his arms kind of resting on his belly. As we got closer, I noticed the man had a big ring on his finger and a long pinky fingernail. I was quick to figure out that this must be the security guard, a man not to be messed with, an intimidating presence, that was for sure. I was kind of glad in that moment that my kids decided not to come along or I didn't invite them or they weren't invited, whatever, that they didn't come along. Later, though, I found out that his name was Ishmael. I have a picture of him here. Ishmael was a Christian, and the shelter that we visited was actually built on his family's property. 
His house was the first building, and he still lives in that house today. Ishmael developed this shelter for vulnerable people in his community, and now it has become a safe house for migrants that are caught at the border. He is committed to providing free shelter for anyone that needs a place to stay. He relies on the good graces of folks in the international community to support his work so that he can continue to offer these services for free. As we walked around visiting with people in the uh, shelter, recurringly we found women and children that could not stop expressing their praises and gratitude for Ishmael, for what he had done for them in providing food and lodging uh, in this time of deep need. I have another picture of him with one of those children right there. Left to my own devices, Ishmael would be relegated to my first judgment of him as a security guard, of what I thought I knew of this man, just like the man's neighbors did of his blindness. How often do we miss the chance to see and to know God's work in the life of another because of what we think we know about them that reduces them to our story. The blind man was first judged by his neighbors based on what they thought they knew of him. Then he was questioned by the religious leaders. The neighbors, unsure of what to make sense, how to make sense of this blind man who now sees, took him to the Pharisees, to the leaders of the synagogue, the community leaders. Certainly they would be able to tell us what's going on here. Certainly they would be the ones that'd be able to see God at work in this man's life, right? Nope. Last week, Pastor Ross uh, shared an awesome, crushed-it sermon on the Sands Scribbler, and one of the questions he left us wondering as all of the Pharisees left uh, that woman who was caught in adultery, he said, "Would would the Pharisees see things differently now that Jesus has confronted their judgments towards this woman? If this passage comes right after that passage, if this chapter comes right after John chapter 8 chronologically like it does in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees certainly failed the test yet again. The Pharisees can't give an inch to this man or even to the work of Jesus in his life. They refuse to believe that this man was born blind. Then they refuse to believe that Jesus has the power to heal him. Then they even accuse Jesus of being a sinner for healing on the Sabbath. Why such resistance? Why rain on the blind man's parade? Why doubt so vehemently the power of God in this man that is known as Jesus? Why not only doubt him, but accuse him of being a sinner for doing a very, very good and miraculous thing? Why? Because a story of Jesus' power, of grace being given, violates what they think they know about the law. You see, the Pharisees had built up a religious system that makes them the dispensers of grace. They are the ones who make sense of this world. They are the ones who who can give someone grace, not this Jesus guy. So what do they do when they are threatened? 
What do we, I mean they, do when people upset their system of power and control? We, I mean they, make rules. They create boundaries. Who's in? Who's out? Who deserves to be in our company and who doesn't deserve to be in our company based on what we see, think, or whatever line we create. The Pharisees said that if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't be a part of this synagogue. You can't be a part of this community. Only people that believe in the law of Moses as we interpret it can be a part of this group. It's got me wondering, do we sometimes, in our zealousness for our convictions and our understandings of what's right and wrong, sometimes miss God's redeeming presence in this world? Don't we, too, sometimes get a little too caught up in what we know about the law or our understanding of the boundaries that we miss the story of God's renewing presence in the lives of other people? I told you that we went on a trip to Juarez a couple weeks ago, and we didn't just meet amazing leaders like Ishmael and Pastor Samuel. We were also given an opportunity to hear firsthand the story of migrants who are caught at the border. Immigration is a super complex issue, and I don't pretend to know much about it. In fact, after being there for four days, I think I know even less, or I feel even less convicted about it. After walking over the bridge from El Paso, Texas into Juarez, like so many people yearn to do, after watching people make a run for the border and trying to squeeze their way through the wall, after watching the border patrol literally arrest people right in front of my face, it's an even more complex issue to me than it was before. And it's so easy for me to get stuck in in wondering what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. How do we fix this? This is too big of a mess. Let's, Let's put our best resources trying to make this issue happen or work better than it is. And sometimes I think that that distraction allows me to miss the humanity of the people that are involved. I want to introduce you to one such person. Her name is Danny. I have a picture here. She is the woman in the middle with the black shirt and the festive green pants on. Danny is a professional accountant from Honduras. She made good money and sustained her family for a long time until she lost her husband. And being a single woman in her community left her feeling extremely vulnerable to the cartels and the gang violence that existed in her town. She felt so desperate and vulnerable that she did what desperate and vulnerable people do, a really desperate thing. She took her two kids, emptied her bank account of some $10,000 she had saved up being an accountant, and tried to make her way to the United States. First, she gave a portion of that income to a series of bus drivers and semi-truck drivers, traffickers, you might say, that tried to get her from Honduras all the way up Central America to the border in Mexico, taking 24 days of travel, sometimes traveling in the back of a semi-truck with so many other people that the lack of oxygen was causing people to turn purple and become asphyxiated, she said. After making it to the border, uh, she paid another sum of money to someone who would actually get her across the border. They call them coyotes. 
She made it into the United States, but was quickly found by Border Patrol. During the COVID pandemic, there was a law set in place, Title 42, I think is what they call it, that made it so that Border Patrol that found immigrants that were undocumented in the United States could immediately bring them back to Mexico. And a part of this was that they would, would, did not want this person to try to make it over the border again. So instead of bringing them back to the border they crossed, they'd take them to another town, to another border, and put them on the uh, bridge over from Mexico over to, uh, or from the United States into Mexico. Danny was one of those people who likely crossed over somewhere down by Corpus Christi, Texas, and then was taken to El Paso and dropped off and sent over the bridge into Mexico. And now she found herself in an even more vulnerable state, in a community she didn't know of and stripped of all of her money that she had saved up and spent getting to where she thought she wanted to be. Eventually, she heard of Ishmael and the shelter that he has, and she now is waiting in a room with these three, uh, well, there's three other women that live in this two-bedroom condo with her, them and their children, 10 to 12 of them. I'm not sure what's going to happen to Danny, and to be honest, I'm not really sure what the best-case scenario is for Danny but if I kept immigration as only an issue I could take a side on, if it was only a law or rule that I must enforce or, or figure out a better way on, I might easily miss the complexity of Danny's story. The story of a professional, an accountant, who has good gifts to offer this world, and especially good gifts to offer a developing nation like Honduras that could be very well served there. I'd miss the story of grace, of finding yourself at the bottom of the barrel, having nothing, and discovering a shelter that offers free food and lodging. I'd miss the story of a love for children so desperate to do something as, as, to empty your entire bank account so that you might have a chance, for, or, and that your ch kids might have a chance at a better life. I'd miss the story of a Christian woman who was trying to love her kids the way Jesus did and be a witness to this world. The Pharisees could only see the man through the lens of their own understanding, their own knowledge of the law. They totally missed Jesus' presence in uh, the blind man's life, the grace that God had bestowed upon them, the good news that this person could now see. How often do we let our perceived understandings, our strong convictions, blind us from the work of Christ and other people? The blind man so far has been rejected by his neighbors for what they thought they knew of him. He's been rejected by the Pharisees for what they know of the law. But maybe most surprising is that he's even rejected by his very own parents seeking confirmation that this man was actually born blind, the Pharisees asked the parents a pointed question. How did your son become well again? The parents know their son. They know that he was born blind, and clearly he can now see. Their son has testified that it was Jesus before that had done this healing. But what do they do under the pressure of the Pharisees when the, the, the cost is that they might lose membership in the synagogue? They buckle. They choose community in the synagogue 
and the security of those relationships over acknowledging that it was Jesus' work in their very own son's life. They were unwilling to compromise what they know in relationship to others to testify to Jesus' work in their son's life. Which has me wondering, when push comes to shove in my life, when acknowledging Jesus' power in this world is risky to my social connections, how do I respond? When the way of Jesus confronts the ways of this world or the ways of the people I love or the ways of, of whoever I subscribe to have power, which choice do I make? Do I have the courage to pick the way of Jesus? Everyone in this man's social network fails him. What the neighbors know of him, what the Pharisees know of the law, and what his own parents know in relationship to their community blind them from seeing the work of Christ in this man's life. Interestingly, though, as those most close to him abandon him, simultaneously, Christ seems to be giving him greater vision for who he is. Right after he has been healed, he, he's testifying to his neighbors, I don't really know who, who did this. It was that man named Jesus. And then later to the prophets, he says, I, I don't know. I, I once was blind, but now I see he must be a prophet. He must be from God. And then even later, when Jesus comes back into the story, what does he say to Jesus? You, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah. I worship you. This is a story of vision, of seeing and knowing. And if we claim we see and know it all, we will be guilty of sin, according to Jesus. But if we embrace that we can't see it all, that we don't know it all, that maybe we see things cloudy through the vision of our own self-interest, maybe then we, like this blind man, can see the work of Christ in our own lives. Maybe then we can experience the grace of Christ-like vision. For the past number of weeks, we've been asking the question, who is this man? And it's a worthy question because we won't fully ever know this man until we come to see him face to face. But in the meantime, we continue to ask, who is this man? Asking that Christ might give us vision to see his work in our lives, in our life, and in this world. Who is this man? This man that gives sight to the blind, not because he asked for it, not because he deserved it, but only because he was willing to receive healing. He acknowledged, I can't see. I don't know at all. And Christ gave him vision. And so I'll ask you one final question this morning. What might you need to become blind to so that you might receive the gift of seeing how Christ is at work in your life and in this world? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.
as we continue to ponder this question together, invite you to stand and we'll join our voices together in singing, Be Thou My Vision. Pray with me, please. Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are our healer and our redeemer. Thank you. Forgive us for the many ways that we don't see you at work in our lives or in the world. 
for being like the children C.S. Lewis describes who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't imagine what is meant by the holiday at the sea. Forgive us too, Lord, for the times that we think we know or see more clearly than we actually do. God, you see those that the world forgets or doesn't see, and you invite us to be partners with you in your work of healing and redemption. We ask you to open our eyes to see the people we overlook and to guide us to act in obedience to your call on our lives. Lord, we lift up all who live with war or the threat of war, especially the people of Ukraine. We beseech you, God, to guide all leaders, whether they are asking for your guidance or not. We pray for an end to the violence in Ukraine and elsewhere and for an increase of peace everywhere. We lift up our country, Lord, asking you to give wisdom and endurance to those in leaderships of all types, government officials, teachers and school staff, healthcare workers, church leaders, business leaders. Encourage the discouraged, Lord, and refresh the weary. We pray for marginalized people everywhere, those living with physical or mental illnesses, the homebound, the poor, the grieving, those who have lost jobs, victims of trafficking, the overwhelmed among us. Help us, Lord, to truly see these people and to be your hands and feet and voice to them. We pray for our church, Lord, so thankful for all the ways you are at work in our midst. Thank you for guiding our search team from the first day until now. Please carry on to completion the process of discerning your plan for our new pastor. We pray, God, that you would fling the doors open for this person you are calling and give clarity and your peace in abundance. Give us patience in the process, Lord, and prepare us to welcome our new pastor in true fellowship fashion. We ask all of this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. I invite you to stand once more as we go from this place and we'll sing together, I Saw the Light. I have a tambourine, so you know what that means. <laughs> You're going to clap along on beat, right? It's going to be awesome.
job, worship team. My friends, the light of the world is Jesus Christ. May he strip away all that blinds us from his work in this world, and may we see him clearly. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.